This is Lenny Pfeffer from the Dorchester County Council. Even when I can't get to the MAKO headquarters in Annapolis, I know I can keep in touch with policy issues by listening to the Conduit Street Podcast. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, today on the podcast, we are going to give our listeners several updates on issues that we have been following closely. Unfortunately, you know, we'll give a teaser here. There are no resolutions to these issues, <laughs> but we do have some substantial updates and we are recording remotely. Michael, I have a bit of a sore throat. I know you have a symptom of some sort and it's hard to think these days that, you know, you don't have COVID although uh, hopefully neither of us do, but isn't it hard when you have anything flare up that you think, oh my gosh, it must be COVID. Right, isn't that the weirdest thing? I've, I mean, I've got basically an earache, which I don't know, you know, happens to me every few years and I'm on antibiotics for it, but certainly I went through a couple of days of saying, oh my gosh, do I need to, do I need to quarantine and isolate and all this sort of stuff? You want to think safely about your family and friends and so forth, so... Anyhow, we're, we're remote again today, you know, even though we had originally had plans to record from the glorious studios on Conduit Street, uh, we're remote again today, we'll be all right. Anything benign even seems like you, you worry a little <laughs> bit, but, but let's jump right into it, Michael. First of all, let's talk about the feds, and we have talked at length about the feds and it, their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that there are a couple proposals on the table different ways of thinking here when it comes to the next round of COVID aid. We've talked with NACO. We've talked with the California Association of Counties to get their perspective on what's happening in Congress. We heard from NACO on Friday, Michael. I mean, there seems to be an impasse. It's been an impasse for a while. The president did some things on his own. Where where do things stand right now in your mind in terms of Congress's ability to get a substantial aid bill passed and, again, to include that much-needed aid for state and local governments? I, I think it's a it's a tough read right now, and I, mean, I say that you know, we're we're very much focused on Annapolis, and that's the language we speak. So we're already out of our depths when we try and get into understanding and analyzing the Congress, much less predicting the Congress. Um, here, it certainly seems like the urgency has abated. I mean, you know, remember, this is the first few days of August. We had Mark Ritaco from the NACO staff, the National Association of Counties. And you know, they were talking about the deadlines ticking and everybody's worried about these uh, foreclosure stalls and, uh, you know, for, uh, extension of the unemployment benefits. And you know, there were all these things with a lot of urgency. And boy, we expect things are going to happen before this recess, hopefully by August 7th. Then it didn't. Then you end up with, you know, I guess I guess technically one executive order and a series of memoranda. This is, you know, technical stuff that I need the I need the NACO equivalent of the Conduit Street podcast to walk me through the the technical differences between those things. But nonetheless, the White right. House issues a few things saying, well, since the Congress couldn't work out a deal, here's some temporary stuff and some limited stuff. No one really seems to know how effective those things are, but it doesn't seem like it's really solved the problems. But mm-hmm. here we are three weeks later, and we're still wringing hands, wondering, 
is anybody even talking about this? So I don't know. I don't want. I don't want to get defeatist. Uh, we know that Congress is scheduled to come back after Labor Day and have um, you know sort of a September session before the end of the federal fiscal year, which is at the end of September. Oddly enough, it it sounds like that's our window for everybody to focus on one last shot to bring all this stuff together and, you know, issues of funding and liability and unemployment. And uh, sadly, the post office, this whole mix of things look like they're, they're on deck for a few weeks in September, one last shot. Right. And and it's significant. You talk about Congress having to come back in September. You mentioned the end of the federal fiscal year. They have to pass their fiscal 21 spending bills in order to avoid another government shutdown at the end of September, I am fairly confident that in an election year, the government will not shut down. NACO seems to think the same thing we heard on Friday. They think it's very unlikely that they won't reach at least an agreement on a continuing resolution to keep the government running, but they could also incorporate some of the short-term funding priorities related to COVID in that process as well. So they're coming back to town, we know, in September. You know, right now we have the political conventions going on. There's a, there's a lot to sort of take the attention away. But when they come back, we're hopeful, I guess, that they're going to get down to business. They have to keep the government open, and maybe there is a chance that they incorporate some of this stuff into continuing resolutions to, to keep the government running before they head back, you know, to campaign at home for the November election. I think one of the things that Mark and his colleagues at NACO have advised us is when when the Congress is in the middle of negotiating a big multi-part deal like this would be, right? The House the House plan is like a three billion dollar or three trillion dollar plan. The Senate sort of countered with a one trillion dollar plan, and it seemed like there was room to move between the two, but multiple moving parts. When that's the case, there's always a danger if the thing you care about most is not the thing that's on everybody's lips. You know, if like the low-hanging fruit gets grabbed and turned into, let's do this as a standalone bill, or let's put this one into a continuing resolution to keep the government open, we'll also put in these two popular things. If the popular stuff gets taken care of, then the hard work stuff sometimes gets left behind. I can't help but worry about that for those of us who, wor- who are worried about funding for state and local governments, that's an area of pretty big philosophical difference between the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate and the White House. So I worry that we're not an easy piece of this puzzle. And you know, who knows what the issue of the moment is, but if you end up with some resolution that, that tackles two or three things, we won't be on that list of two or three things. And then in theory, well, we got the thing that I care about m- most taken care of. So I'm no longer interested in negotiating that other stuff. We might be part of that other stuff. Right. And, and we've heard this before with the, the various COVID packages that have passed through Congress. The last time was we'll get to the state and local governments in time. We'll do that the next time. You know, here we are again. It still hasn't happened. And I think we are probably the biggest issue, you know, that's dividing these parties right now is direct and flexible aid for states and local governments who are getting crushed by this pandemic, spending a lot more money to address immediate health and safety concerns, also getting hammered when it comes to revenue, our central revenue sources. So it's vital, but I agree with you. You know, we've heard this before. If they get the easy stuff done that everybody can agree with, we get kicked down the road again. 
And then who knows what happens? Who knows if that money ever shows up, especially, again, with an election around the corner? Everything can change overnight. I think it's important that they get something done in September, Michael. And we have to be number one at the top of where this gulf resides between these two negotiating parties at this point. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a big area of difference. And I mean, this traces to a number of things that it's become a talking point politically that funding for state and local governments is some sort of bailout for mismanagement, that some places have done a lousy job with their budgets or with their taxes, and they're just trying to, you know, trying to use the feds to cover up their problems. I, I don't think there's any truth to that, but that's become a common political discourse. I think less so as the COVID-driven crisis has become more than just a regional issue. For a while, it felt like the Northeast Corridor and the Pacific Northwest were hit the hardest. That has a political overtone that made it easy for someone from a different part of the country to say, well, you know, I'm not really sure I want to help New York State with their budget problem. Well, suddenly it's Florida and Texas and Arizona and Colorado and virtually everywhere in the country facing this to one degree or another. Um, I think hopefully that issue is less sharp than it once was. I have to say, without without getting too into the political side of this, it's fascinating to me that the we know Congress likes to use acronyms for their bills, right? So they find five or, or seven words that are relevant to what the bill is, and they put them in the proper order. So the bill has a snappy name. Like the first the first round of COVID bills was the CARES bill, right? C-A-R-E-S. And right, like, you know, right. Congress cares about you. Okay, that's that's a that's good messaging. I like it as marketing matter. So the House of Representatives, now it's been a couple of months. They passed their bill number four, and they labeled it Heroes, right? And then the Senate made sort of a gesture to pass their own plan. It was a very narrow and scaled down, and some parts are really convoluted, but. You know, from from the perspective of just as an advocate of local governments and their frontline services, I think it's fascinating that the acronym they chose was HEALS. And I mean, OK, so on a certain level, I know it's supposed to mean like this bill is is going to help the country heal from the pandemic, H-E-A-L. But I, I can't every time I hear someone talk about it's HEROES versus HEALS. I start thinking about professional wrestling where we use terms like the face is the good guy and the heel <laughs> is the bad guy. And they, they, there's like this whole character in professional wrestling of someone who's designed to be villainous and mean and the crowd is supposed to hate him and he's, he's there to be a heel. The idea of heroes versus heels just has me thinking of you know, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell in professional wrestling garb with, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, stagecraft and all that kind of nonsense, making it even more dramatic than Congress already is. I like it. I, we'd have to have uh, multiple doctors on standby if those two were to get in the ring and start jumping off the ropes. I think I think I think that's fair to say. But I, I really like that analogy. And, you know, unfortunately, this is just the way it goes in D.C. these days. A lot of posturing, a lot of politics. But we are on the outside looking in at this point, and you know we'll have an update hopefully when Congress comes back and starts to work this stuff out. But we'll we'll wait and see what happens. And unfortunately, that also connects to what we've got pending in Maryland as our own budget crisis. We we know the state of Maryland is looking at a pretty dire circumstance for the fiscal year 
that we just started several weeks ago. We know there's another shoe scheduled to drop that'll mean budget cutbacks and so forth within the state budget and potentially affecting counties. We think that's probably coming in the weeks ahead. It's possible that debate shows up again while once again, the Congress is still, you know, beachballing this issue back and forth without a clear resolution. And, you know, whether the state needs to savage local governments and nonprofits and their own employees is largely going to be a function of whether Congress can come through with something to help. No resolution there. Michael, let's go to another topic that has gotten a lot of attention here in Maryland. It is a county-related topic. We're talking about Wicomico County, and we have talked extensively about the untimely death of Bob Culver, former county executive in Wicomico County. And Michael, the county council in this circumstance has to name a new county executive to replace County Executive Culver. That person would then be eligible to run in 2022 uh, for a full term. And we've seen this play out over the past few weeks. Under the county charter, the council has 45 days to appoint a new county executive. That puts the deadline at Wednesday, September 9th year. The county council debated and did make an appointment. There were a couple of candidates. They made a decision. It was a contentious vote. That person who they appointed then said, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to accept the nomination. So now, Michael, it's back in the hands of the council. But there is an interesting quirk here that I think is very meaningful when it comes to county government and this process of, of selecting a person to fill the, a vacancy, particularly when it comes to county executive. Talk about that and how this has played out. I mean, what's going on in Wicomico County and what are the ramifications here moving forward? First of all, I don't think we, we fully know what's going on uh, with this whole story. So, you know, we, we can report on the actions that the body ha has taken and the council took a vote and, and ended up with a candidate who had applied and went through an interview process. But over the course of a few days, it, it, it appears maybe that the rigors of the job being a, a real full-time commitment, not the sort of thing that you could do on top of a current profession, may have a difference between the candidate being willing to do it and not. But mm -hmm. re regardless of how that came together, I think there's an interesting sub-story here that's less reported. But you know, for, for our listeners and, and guys like us who are just into this sort of thing, I find it really tricky. And, and that is, we had a sitting member of the county council express interest in the position. Actually, two of them expressed interest, but one formally applied and said, I want to be considered for the position. And then in the period of time between, I guess they had a you know an application process, sort of like when you have a job announcement, and, and then the time that the council itself held a Q&A interview style with the various uh, applicants, it's, it turns out the le you know, legal advice from, I don't know whether it was the county attorney or from the office of the attorney general, but they received legal advice effectively saying you can't sit on the deliberating body and pursue the, dis the position that the body is considering at the same time. Council member Joe Holloway was one of the people who pursued, who expressed interest in the position and was going to be on the list of people to be interviewed. He had to withdraw from consideration because he's a sitting council member. So, I, I mean, yeah, without, without beating this issue to death, it seems to me that that's a tricky spot, right? You don't want to have a conflict of interest and you don't, 
you know, you don't want to have a person voting for themselves in this circumstance. So I, you know, intuitively, I could understand the idea of saying that person needs to be excused from the vote or, you know, recuse themselves from the ultimate vote or even the deliberations. That makes sense. But to be unable to pursue the position just by virtue of holding the seat, like you'd have to resign from the council just to run, that that seems like an aggressive interpretation of let's keep this all above board. And the practical effect seems, I mean, a sitting council member might very well be among the most qualified person. I mean, those that handful of people in a given charter county, they might be some of the best qualified people. To, to run for county executive uh, in, in Wicomico. They have a couple at-large seats. Those people have already stood for election with the entire populace of the county. That's That would put that person in a strong position to seek that spot. And now you've got a legal opinion saying, nope, can't do it. It's weird. Right. So the county's legal staff did say that there were questions about whether other members of the council could support one of their colleagues without running afoul of ethics and conflicts of interest statutes. And that's why Councilmember Holloway withdrew his application from this process. But I agree with you. I mean, moving forward, when you have this situation in a charter county, like you said, especially at large, I mean, these folks presumably have been all over the county. They've talked to voters all over the place because they are running at large. And to take them out of the pool of potential candidates, it seems like you could be handcuffing yourself there. We know that there are other candidates here that will still be in the running. But it is a very interesting process, the way this has played out particularly that legal advice, I agree with you. There was a similar situation in Anne Arundel County, right, Michael, a few years ago, uh, right. where I think maybe this this legal advice comes from, but it is a very rigid interpretation. I agree with you, and it, it has ramifications moving forward, no doubt about it, and, and at least in my mind. I, I think put a pin in this. I mean, this is this is not the most exciting or politically salacious issue of the day or of the moment or of the year, but I mean this is the sort of thing that gets my you know I'm scratching my head over this and I have to think I'm not alone in doing so. So you know I I don't know it wouldn't shock me to see a, a bill in the general assembly pop up to say hey you know notwithstanding our conflict of interest laws et cetera et cetera for this particular circumstance here's a reasonable path where a sitting council member could pursue the seat as as county executive and these are the limits on how they go about doing that i mean that doesn't seem like an unreasonable path forward to me i i don't know i'd i'd be happy to sit at the table with a group of people and try and talk about how you draft that bill yeah i think it's really interesting and i agree with you too i think there could very well be legislation especially because this is a highly publicized issue in Maryland. It's getting a lot of attention. I have to think somebody's going to look at this and say, maybe we should make the rules here instead of relying on a legal interpretation. So no resolution there. That's going to be the theme. Uh, yeah, our next, it's, our, it's our theme. Our next update has to do with elections, something else we've talked about a lot. You know, we're not going to go through how we got here today, but the fact is we're here today. Everybody is going to be mailed a ballot application. You could then fill out that application, return it, and get a ballot. We're also going to have vote centers across the state for early voting and on Election Day. And we last talked, Michael Mako wrote a letter as well as Senator Cheryl Kagan saying that it wasn't fair to ask counties to foot the bill for the 
applications for ballots, because while state statute says that we have to pitch in for the postage when it comes to return ballots, there's nothing in statute about applications. That letter went to the State Board of Elections. The State Board of Elections unanimously agreed with MAKO, with Senator Kagan, that counties who are also struggling amid the COVID-19 pandemic with their budgets should not be on the hook for a substantial amount of money just to get these ballots prepared, printed, and out the door to voters. Now the Department of Budget Management has to approve the board's request for extra money, extra state funding. But I guess it's a good thing that the state board unanimously agreed that the county should not be on the hook for this, that the state should pay for it. It was a state decision and counties were not the table. So good update there, but we still don't have a resolution. Well, I think I think you put the two arguments side by side, and I I think it's the latter more than the former. Um, I mean, Mako is happy to go to the table and we'll argue that, hey, the counties can't afford to do this because we have these other responsibilities, A, B, C. And hey, you know, right now the county budgets are definitely strained and we are going to be in trouble. Everybody knows that. But I think the fact of the matter here is this was a decision made entirely at the state level. The idea to rather than send everyone a ballot, to send everyone an application and then receive those applications and then potentially send people ballots just involves a great deal more mailing cost than anybody had planned on. And then, you know, legislation to set up this this split had originally envisioned. This was a state call. And to suddenly say, now the counties will be invoiced for this many millions of dollars because of a state administrative decision, I think that's where we have the strongest argument. We, we didn't ask for this. We didn't, we didn't come to the table and say, this is the way we want to do it. Actually, quite the contrary. Our election professional said, send everybody a ballot, do one mailing. By not doing that, we've incurred extra costs, but it was the state's call. It should be the state's tab. Again, good news that the state board agreed unanimously, but we will wait to see the administration's response, whether or not they'll approve that extra state appropriation to cover the full freight of the ballot applications that everyone will receive leading up to the November election. So good news there, no resolution. I do think, Michael, we're going to talk about one more issue, and it is a resolution in a way it comes from a lot of hard work from people across the state, and that is text to 911. And I'll lead here with the slogan, call if you can, text if you must. Text to 911 is now available across the state in every county. County 911 centers rolled this function out last week. All boats are rising here together, Michael. You have the ability to text now from Garrett County all the way to Worcester County, and every jurisdiction can accept text. Again, a call is the preferred way to get in touch with 911, but this is really a service that is meant to help people who may be hard of hearing or in a position where it's not safe to make a call to 911. So really, really big technological advance here. This is another step toward next generation 911, which we've talked about a lot. It was one of our initiatives a couple of years ago. It's been on the forefront of our interests, but text to 911, rolling it out statewide seamlessly is a big, big deal. And we have to mention it here today because it's a lot of years of hard work from our frontline professionals. And we're in the middle of COVID. We're still able to roll this out. I'm impressed with their work. Uh, all of the above, very, very well said. I, I, would, I would just you know, circle and highlight and emphasize one piece of that. And, and that is when Mako was at the table saying that bringing Maryland to next generation 911 service was our priority and it was the counties across the state who want to do this, that if there was one 
slogan or one element of that argument that was most essential, in my opinion, it was we need to have a statewide plan. Otherwise, we will end up with haves and have-nots. And we will end up with the quality of service you receive at your time of most desperate need could end up being a function of, well, you know, how's your county's property tax base look? How, how's the budget working itself out? Were we able to find the money for this technology to receive these kind of messages and so forth? We, we know the state provides funds for these systems and, and so forth. I mean, it's, it's kind of a complicated web, but there's no doubt in my mind it's because of the work that lots of us put, put, you know, put lots of hard, hard work into. It's because of all that work that we're announcing this is a statewide rollout rather than, you know, one county did it this year and then three more counties and then we still haven't figured out what the plan is for the remaining 11 or 17 or whatever. I, I'm really, really proud of the way this came together. And, and Kevin, you personally and professionally should be as well. Uh, our listeners may not realize uh, there's no way they would understand the amount of blood, sweat and tears that you personally have put into this Along with our professionals, our emergency services and 911 professionals have been an enormous asset on this. Um, legislative leaders, uh, mentioning again our good friend Cheryl Kagan uh, from, from the Senate and also the leader of the, the commission that's been working on this. She's put in an extraordinary amount of time and effort, along with a number of legislative colleagues um, Senator Riley, um, Delegate Krebs, and Delegate Jackson have all been night and day on this topic, and we've recognized them at MAKO events, properly so for their leadership, but we can't say it enough times. It took everybody rowing in the same direction to pull off what is a great, great policy accomplishment. I'm really proud of it. Yeah, and you often talk about coalitions, and this, I think, was the ultimate coalition. It started with that commission, as you mentioned, the Commission to Advance Next Generation 911 across Maryland, which, by the way, is continuing to meet there are other issues that need to be accomplished, but this is, again, just one piece of Next Generation 911. There's still a lot of work to do. It's a tremendous accomplishment, and it, it certainly makes our public safety here in Maryland more effective. I'm very proud of the work as well. It's a big deal to get this rolled out statewide. All right, Michael, we're going to go ahead and leave it there today. We both are going to go get a COVID test, it sounds like. Do you have any, uh, do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up today? I just think, um, yeah, a, a good deal to, to look forward to. Um, at the moment, I'm looking back on a series of events that MAKO has hosted over the last couple of months. As, as everybody knows, we weren't able to have our in-person conference in, in August, which has become a Maryland political and policy tradition. So without the MAKO Summer Conference, we still wanted to connect with our members and our leaders we provided an, an online series of, of uh, topical subjects and uh, had really strong and interested turnout from elected officials and others in and around the county community. Um, I was really happy to be able to do that over the last couple of months. We had a session just today, uh, earlier today, ab about connecting with your constituents, sort of you know when the chips are down in a crisis like this. And I don't know, I've got like a page and a half of notes from just today's session of you know good ideas and takeaways and stuff that we can build into things that MAKO is doing as an association, but also as best practices for county governments. Um, 
I'm glad we were able to make, you know, spin a little bit of gold out of the straw that we had in the wake of saying we can't be in Ocean City in the middle of August like we'd all like to be. So happy about that. Yeah, I agree. Certainly a successful summer series. And we're hopeful that we will all be back in Ocean City next summer. But I think this was a, a worthwhile effort to make sure that we were still connected with our members. But Michael, we'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. But until next week, for Michael, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.